This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. Amen. Our children can go off to their time of ministry as we reflect together on the darkest and most disturbing chapter of the Bible. And it's here in John chapter 19, as we listen to the story of the crucifixion and death of Jesus that Anne read to us, that we see the horror of human sin culminating in the torture and the murder of the Son of God. And here at the cross, human evil tears off its mask and reveals the demonic lengths, the demonic lengths it will go to in its fear and hatred of God. And in John's account in this chapter, all of humanity is implicated in this crime. The religious and the secular authorities join hands. The hated occupier and the occupied, the oppressor and the oppressed, make an alliance together. And both the elite and the crowds shout, crucify him. We encounter the cross, first of all, as a terrifying judgment on human sin. Sin and all of its horror. And this light of judgment is shining on all of us. We are the ones being exposed in this story. And although, of course, none of us were personally present at the cross, we are all part of the human race that murdered Jesus. 20 years ago, a little girl named Heather Thomas went missing, not far from where I grew up. And there was a, a massive hunt for her. There was a very suspicious young man in her building. And several weeks later, I heard on the radio that her strangled body had been found in the shallow waters of Alouette Lake. And I felt myself flooded by a kind of guilt and remorse. This feeling like there was this human evil and depravity, but I was somehow complicit in it because every expression of my own sin, I am endorsing a world like this. I am saying, yes, I would prefer a world in rebellion against its creator where these kind of things happen. We're all accomplices. We're all complicit. We all have the blood of Jesus on our hands. Crucifixion was something that the Romans picked up from the Persians who got it from other cultures in the ancient world, and it was really the Romans who perfected crucifixion as a way to rule their slaves and manage their conquered peoples through fear. Crucifixion was an instrument of state terror. A disturbing example of how the greatest empires and civilizations, the ones like the Romans who represent 
the very best achievements of human culture and civilization are always built on violence and oppression. The cross, of course, was an excruciating, literally excruciating way to inflict physical torment on people. It always began with the brutal flogging, and there were many victims who never even survived that. Then the condemned man was forced to carry the crossbeam along the road to the place of execution where he was stripped naked, either tied or nailed through the, hand, through the wrists and the feet to the wood, and then propped up to die in the most agonizing and lingering way possible. Crucifixion, by design, damaged no vital organs because they did not want to kill quickly. The Romans wanted to extract every, loss, every last drop of pain to anyone who dared to defy the state. And victims would linger on sometimes for several days, expiring only of exhaustion. But it wasn't just about physical suffering, and, and John and Matthew and Mark and Luke are actually say very little about the physical details of Jesus' death. Because what the cross and crucifixion was really about was maximum humiliation and degradation of the victim. To be crucified was to suffer a death reserved for slaves. After the defeat of Spartacus and his slave rebellion, the Roman general Crassus had the, ro the roads lined with 6,000 slaves on crosses. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. This was the death reserved for dangerous criminals, for rebels against the empire, for slaves, people who were outlaws with no human rights. And in her book on the cross, Fleming Rutledge writes, crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. She describes crucifixion as a ritualized extermination, a way of tearing the face off of a person and squashing them like an insult. And that's why John and the other evangelists say very little about Jesus' physical torments and emphasize the shame, the spitting, and the mocking. And last week we meditated on the glories of the incarnation that the Son of God would descend from heaven for us and become a human being. But the crucifixion shows how low Jesus is willing to go for us, all the way to the very bottom for our sake. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're meditating today on the clause from the Nicene Creed, about the crucifixion that reads, For our sake, he, Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. The Nicene Creed is a very short creed. There are not many words here. This is Christianity stripped down to its essential core. And apparently one of the things that you must say when you describe the very basic foundation of Christianity is that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried for our sake. And you might wonder why this is, why a death that was so horrible and so shameful 
is put at the very heart of the Christian faith. Why is it the Gospels, who don't always tell all the same stories, but each of the four evangelists at great length tells the story of the crucifixion of Jesus? This is very strange because the cross was hugely offensive and by far the greatest obstacle to evangelization. There was a graffiti that was discovered 100 years ago or so, and I want to show it to you from, it's estimated to be around 200 AD. And it was found in the Palatine Hill in Rome, and this is, um, this is the graffiti. And there is a naked human figure with the head of a donkey and a man standing to the left. And what this says in Greek, the graffiti says, is Alexamenos worships his God. Apparently, there was a faithful believer named Alexamenos, and one of his neighbors is drawing this mocking graffiti, ridiculing someone who would worship a condemned and crucified criminal. Crucifixion was so shameful and appalling that the word was not considered mentionable in polite Roman society. And the Jews, of course, believed that anyone who hung on a tree was cursed by God, as Deuteronomy says. So how could God allow a true prophet, much less his chosen Messiah, to be degraded and to be defeated in this way? And this is why Islam, which reverences Jesus as the prophet Esau, the Quran states, Jesus was not crucified. Jesus didn't die. It only appeared that way to those who were watching. But Jesus was taken straight up into heaven because Islam, this religion of power, cannot accept that God would allow his prophet to be humiliated on a cross like this. The crucifixion was the greatest stumbling block to anyone becoming a Christian. And surely, if any fraudster was inventing a religion in the first century in the Roman Empire, the very last thing they would do to its hero is to have him crucified. Imagine L. Ron Hubbard, the guy who came up with Scientology. Imagine him writing pages and pages describing himself being convicted for possessing child pornography and his disciples going on and on about what had happened to their founder. No one would ever become a Scientologist. But here are the first Christians going around, not embarrassed by the cross, not trying to apologize for it or explain it away or saying, well, it was really his teachings that matter, not how he died. The first Christians are going around joyfully proclaiming and announcing the Messiah was crucified. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the very center of our message. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And over the centuries, we've become so used to the cross as a symbol, we forget how strange and bizarre it is that we lift up this instrument as the central symbol of our faith. No other religion has at its center the humiliation and execution of its God. But this is what we boast in as followers of Jesus. And even today, of course, the cross is not something that is designed for mass appeal. This is not very upbeat or cheerful. 
uh, not very uplifting or inspiring. No one goes away from reading John chapter 19 feeling great about themselves. So why is it that we Christians gather week after week, singing about the cross, preaching about the cross, taking this meal symbolizing the cross? Why are we going on and on about the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, John wants us to understand the cross is much more than a terrible tragedy or even a terrible crime. This is God's plan. As Jesus says to the Roman governor Pilate, standing before him in the hall of judgment, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. And somehow we feel like Jesus the condemned, the prisoner, the one in chains, is somehow in control of everything that is happening in this passage, walking steadily along on the path that he has chosen to follow. Because everything that is happening here through the hands of evil men, behind that all is the hidden hand of God, behind these events, fulfilling ancient prophecies, directing all things towards the salvation of God. Of the world. And behind Pilate, the judge, imagining himself to have power and authority, is God the judge. Speaking through Pilate the divine condemnation against sin. The cross tells us that we need justice in the world. Evil must be exposed, it must be named, it must be rejected, it must be condemned, and it must be destroyed. And if God actually wants to deal with evil in the world, he can't just wave it away with a few kindly words and pretend nothing ever happened and everything's going to be okay now. If God wants to bring about deep justice... And deep reconciliation, it must and can only happen through this path of the cross. If human beings are to be saved from themselves. Salvation is beyond any human capacity to bring about. We're so entangled by sin, so enslaved by the evil one, so corrupted by death, we're unable to lift a finger to liberate ourselves. And the Nicene Creed describes how God sends his son to be born of the Virgin Mary in the likeness of fallen, sinful human flesh to become a human being with a human body capable of suffering and dying. And in the Gospel of John and in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus' mission leads him steadily forward to the cross. Now, the New Testament contains such a rich kaleidoscope of images and symbols describing what God has done through the, through the cross that we wouldn't have time to touch on even more than one of them this afternoon. What I want to focus is the one that that John very subtly brings out in this chapter, in chapter 19, the one that he hints at in verse 13. John wants us 
to have at the front of our minds that at the moment that Jesus was condemned before Pilate, it was the day of preparation for Passover at noon. And this is highly symbolic because it was at this exact time that the ritual slaughter of the Passover lambs began for the feast the next day. Passover, if you're not up on, on Judaism and the Old Testament, Passover was the greatest of the Jewish feasts, and it celebrated liberation from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years before. And the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, literally the book of the exit, describes how God sent plague after plague on, the, on Pharaoh and the Egyptians to loosen their hands on Israel. And at the very last and worst of the plagues, God sends the destroying angel, the angel of death, throughout the land of Egypt to kill all the firstborn. But Moses is instructed to tell the Israelites to make sure that this angel does not take your firstborn. You need to kill a lamb in this way and take its blood and paint your doorposts with this red blood of the lamb so that the angel would pass over your house. Hence the name of the festival, the Passover. And that night, the Jews were eating their roast lamb, they were eating their herbs, they were standing there with their shoes and their staff and their backpack on because that very night, God was going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And the story of the Exodus was the story that dominated the Jewish imagination for centuries because every year at, Pas at the Passover feast, all the people would gather in their homes and commemorate that God had redeemed them from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Passover was about two things, redemption and atonement. And in chapter 19, John is describing Jesus' death on the cross as the greater reality to which even such a great deliverance as the Exodus was, was just a signpost pointing to what God was really going to do through Jesus. The cross is about redemption and atonement. It's about redemption through atonement. Redemption just means liberation, freedom by the power of God. And this redemption in Exodus and in John is an expression of God's righteousness, his saving justice, God's determination to fix what's wrong with his world, to defeat evil, and to set things right for his covenant people. And you know, the sad thing about the Old Testament was that even this mighty salvation of Exodus was not enough. It turned out that military, political liberation from Israel's enemies didn't bring them true freedom. Because even though Israel left Egypt, Egypt never really left the Israelites. They were always hankering after the leeks and the onions and garlics of their slavery. And it turned out that Israel didn't just need to be liberated from the Egyptians. They needed to be saved from themselves. As over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel falls short. And so here the Jews are, year after year, celebrating this Passover feast. These two aspects, rescue from God's judgment of death when the angel passes over them, and rescue from slavery to the forces of evil.
at the very beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist points Jesus out and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is pointing us, directing our eyes to Jesus as the blood sacrifice who dies in our place. The Old Testament teaches that sin can only result in death, both as God's judgment and simply the natural, inevitable consequence of consuming poison. And Jesus comes and he voluntarily, of his own will, takes our place as our representative, as our substitute, the innocent man who allows himself to be condemned and executed on behalf of us, the guilty. That's why the Nicene Creed doesn't just say Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. It says, for our sake, he was crucified, died, and buried. For us, in our place, as our substitute. Maximilian Kolbe was a Franciscan, pre a Franciscan friar and Catholic priest who ended up in Auschwitz in the Nazi, Nazi concentration camp. At the end of July 1941, a prisoner escaped, and the SS were unable to recover this person, so they said, as a reprisal, 10 men are going to die. They will be sealed up into this bunker without food and without water, and they will die of starvation or thirst, whichever one comes first. And so the guard randomly chose 10 men to die for this prisoner. And one of the men who was chosen cried out in agony, my wife, my children. And this Catholic priest was standing there and he stepped forward and asked for permission to take this man's place. And the guards gave him permission. And the eyewitnesses, the, the janitor who was caring for these prisoners or checking in on them describes how Maximilian Colby led the condemned in prayer. And after two weeks of agony, nine of the prisoners had died of hunger and thirst. And on August 14, 1941, Father Colby himself died after receiving a lethal injection. It's a powerful story of someone sacrificing their own life in place of a stranger. A profound expression of Christian love. But it's only a faint picture because Jesus, of course, is doing something far greater, not dying for an innocent stranger. He's dying for his enemies who are murdering him. Dying for all of us who have rejected God and refused to allow the life of the Creator into our hearts. The cross is not just the revelation of the horrors of human sin. At the same time, the cross is the revelation of the love of God. It shows us the terrible depths God is willing to go to rescue you from yourself. We are all sinful, sinful people, fallen short of the glory of God. And we all have guilt and shame hanging heavy upon us. And we have, our own, we have our own little psychological mechanisms to cope with them and manage. But we're unable to free ourselves from our burden. And we can only look forward to death 
with dread. And the message of the gospel is that God has sent his son into the world for our sakes, for us and for our salvation, to stand in our place, to take our guilt and shame and sin and curse off of your shoulders and to put it onto himself and to go alone into the darkness of death. Our redemption from Egypt, from slavery to Satan and sin and death is secured by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, our mighty Redeemer. And his death is the price that he gladly pays to redeem us from slavery, to free us to be the beloved sons and daughters of God. So that we can go through the wilderness singing the song of Miriam on our way toward the promised land. We're not under the slavery of false gods who demand that we sacrifice ourselves for them. We worship a God who says, I will sacrifice myself for you. You unworthy, sinful, guilty, dirty person, I love you, and I am willing to do whatever it costs to bring you into my family. John 19 is a very dark chapter, the darkest in the Bible, but it shines with glory. Because for John especially, the cross is the revelation of the glory of the Son. And just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness in the Old Testament and everyone who looked at the serpent was healed from the plague, so John says everyone who looks up at Jesus lifted up on the cross will receive salvation. This is the message of God's grace, his sheer generosity to us. Grace that is free for us, but incredibly costly for him. Yet out of his deep love for humanity, God gives his son and he gives him gladly. And Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endures the cross. He despises the shame so that he might bring you and me washed and clean before the Father. And that's why as Christians, we proclaim the cross. We sing the cross we preach the cross and we glory in the cross because the cross, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is the salvation of the whole world. And only the cross of Christ can free us from sin and from Satan, from death, and can bring us into the family of God. It's a very simple message. So simple we have a hard time believing it. Jesus died for you. He took your place. He took your sin. He took your guilt and he paid the full price. And now Jesus, the risen Jesus, is present with us, holding out his hands and offering to you salvation as a gift. He's not demanding that you sacrifice yourself for him. He's saying, I have sacrificed myself for you. And as a gift, I am offering you freedom from guilt, from sin, from shame, from fear. And I'm giving you a new life with God as your father. He's not demanding any payment from you. He's simply 
offers to anyone who's willing to open their hand, to open their empty hand and receive what Jesus wants to give. And that gift is for you today if you're willing to pray to Jesus and receive his gift of the cross. But I have to ask, what about the rest of us? I wonder if the old, old story of the cross has become a little bit blasé. We've lost interest in Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we want to talk and think and pray and wrestle with more interesting topics. I wonder if our hearts still burn within us when we stand at the foot of the cross. This is the reason we celebrate communion every week. We do not want to forget what Christ has done for us because he himself is our life. And every week we're gathering together celebrating the Passover meal, not as a story of liberation that happened to other people a long time ago. This is us. This is our story. This is our lives And these are our sins that we're bringing to Jesus again and again to receive cleansing, forgiveness, healing, and acceptance as his gift. We are a a gifted people and a graced people. We are loved despite of everything for the sake of Christ and his death on the cross. Shall we pray now and ask the Holy Spirit to make this a deep reality in our own hearts? Heavenly Father, we know that above everything, you love to glorify your Son. You love to exalt him because you have given him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, this Jesus who has gone down to the depths, every knee should bow. And you have rightly given him the highest place at your right hand. We pray together, Lord, that none of us would hang back and refuse to give what you so freely offer. I pray that all of us would know the bliss of our sin, not in part, but the whole nailed to the cross. May we stand up and sing, knowing, knowing that we bear it no more, that no burden, no guilt, no condemnation, no shame, and no fear hangs over us. But we are accepted, beloved, ransomed, restored, and forgiven. And we need your Holy Spirit, O oh Lord, for this. So pour him afresh into our hearts so that we might be people of the cross. In Jesus' mighty name, in the name of our Savior and our Liberator, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.